0: Close enough. Let's begin with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that you sent him in this world to be our Savior. And we ask you, O Lord, to please bless us now as we study uh, your whole counsel, as much as within us lies by your blessings. To understand the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask you to please uh, Stir up within our hearts a desire to know you more, to study you in your word, to learn you, and to become conversant in the covenant of grace by which we are saved. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so we began talking about the new perspective on Paul last Lord's Day, and we'll continue in that that vein today. But after you know sitting through last week's class, it wouldn't be unnatural for you to ask yourself, "What's the point? Why do we bother to study the new perspective on Paul?" I did describe it as an academic movement, uh, and what would be the you know where's the beef? What's what's the usefulness for a you know ordinary church members on a Lord's Day, Sunday school to? Become acquainted with this, with the doctrines of this academic movement. Uh, the first thing we should think, we should recognize, is that although it is an academic movement, it is probably the reigning paradigm amongst you know New Testament scholars in academia today. It is, it is at least a force to be reckoned with uh, by those scholars who reject it. So, it's sort of the reigning paradigm in the academic. New Testament Guild, I guess you could call it. I think it is coming under increasing criticism, and not only from Reformed denominations, that is churches, but also from other academics. And in fact, uh, the, in some ways, the leaders of that movement have had to, at least in part, moderate their views and claims uh, under the weight of such criticism. And the New Perspective on Paul isn't merely an academic movement. It has also come into the Reformed Churches. It has come into the Reformed Churches in, in something that uh, it's, that's called the Federal, federal Vision. And we'll, we'll close this course in the Doctrine of Salvation next Lord's Day, God willing, with a discussion of the Federal Vision in, in a little more detail. Now, when we're talking about New Perspective today and Federal Vision next week, there's only so deep that we can and should go into these questions, uh, but that doesn't mean that it's not important, and it doesn't mean that it's not worthy of your study. And there's only so much we can do, unless we devote an entire course on this on the class. And I will probably just dis- discuss with the session whether or not, you know, in another year or two we could do a uh, a whole semester, a whole term. Uh, On these things to to go into more depth and detail but that doesn't mean that because we are not doing a a deep dive into the new perspective on pile that it's not worthy of your private study Um, that's one reason why I sent around the uh, OPC's report on justification uh, so that you could do do so on your own So it's not just a mere academic exercise. Today, when we're going over the new perspective, we're not indulging in a mere academic exercise. It's a matter of great importance for the ordinary church members, even at Mid-Cities, and you could say especially at Mid-Cities. Members of this current church, the church of your membership, uh, have had to become acquainted with the particulars of the Federal Vision, and the New Perspective on Paul, which is sort of the intellectual, uh, super, uh, the intellectual foundation of the Federal Vision movement within the church, Reformed Churches. The founding members of this church had to be familiar with those doctrines. And as a result of their familiarity with those doctrines, and for their preparedness, they're having studied the New Perspective and the Federal Vision on their own as church members at another church in the area here, uh, it was because of their acquaintance with these doctrines that they recognized these doctrines coming from their own pulpit, coming from their own lectern. And maybe uh, maybe one of the founding members of the church, uh, Elder Wiley, if you could uh, shed some light on that history, because I wasn't a part of Mid-Cities when it was initially formed. So maybe uh, what happened uh, in your experience that brought you here? in, you know, broad terms.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Um, we really started back in about, I would say, 2000, 2001. We really had to start getting into it because we were starting to hear things coming out of the pulpit that were uh, different, let's say. And, yeah, we, uh, a bunch of us went over to... Uh, Auburn Avenue, which is over in Monroe, where uh, the idea was to talk about covenant. And what it really was, was a uh, seminar on what was then, began being called the Federal Vision. And as you mentioned, the new perspective is kind of mixed in there with it. Uh, But uh, I was on the session of that church and when it became more and more obvious that that was the direction that the senior pastor was going it got there became a split within the church especially within the session and uh, it got bad and we even went to Presbytery where uh, the Presbytery decided senior pastor stays everybody else can go. And that started this church uh, back in 2004. And, uh, but the Federal Vision is something that, as, as you kind of mentioned, they it really affected the PCA more than any other particular denomination where uh, charges were filed, Uh, Some folks uh, skirted being uh, really uh, had anything done, and uh, that's when really things really started cooking as far as the Federal Vision, these ideas, because one of the key concepts of Federal Vision and a really new perspective is this idea of covenantal faithfulness, because I believe you mentioned that. And what that really means is works righteousness because one of the key concepts they have is what they call final justification (laughs) which, you know, kind of goes against everything that uh, the Western Standards, Reformed Faith uh, has ever really considered so that you have no assurance and the only way you find out is when you stand before God and he says, sorry, <laughs> you weren't covenantally faithful enough, so you're out. And, uh, yeah, it, a lot of people have compared it to, to a certain extent to Roman Catholicism. Because of it, in Arminianism, because of this idea of works righteousness. And, uh, of course, the upside was from Catholicism, at least you get purgatory. <laughs> <laughs> and then you can go. but no. It's not much that's, of an upside, is it? <laughs> so that's one of the, the main concepts that really we decided, you know, the session was told totally leave, and we decided, well, let's check out the OPC. <laughs> and we started this church with our first service, what, January 2005.
0: So there were you and a number of other members of the session, apparently, and members of the church. In order to recognize something coming from the pulpit that smacked of the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision, you had to be at least somewhat familiar with those doctrines beforehand, right?
1: Well, we had it, it was sort of like a, a, an ongoing learning thing, especially after Auburn Avenue.
0: That's kind of kicked off the concerns. That kicked
1: off the concerns not only for our church, but the PCA. Okay. uh, Yeah. Put it on the radar. uh, Yeah, it got on the radar. uh, It started uh, uh, really ramping up as far as what was going on and uh, the people who were involved with it, who were, uh, you know, Doug Wilson uh, in Moscow. Yeah. He had very much had a lot of influence in regards to homeschooling, so he had a lot of influence in in helping develop this idea of the federal vision and plugging in a new perspective where where it fit. And uh, so from that point on, we decided, okay, we got we got to figure out what's going on. And that's when we started reading more and more and more, reading Sanders books and and all this other stuff to start figuring out okay, what's really being taught here uh, in T. Wright, things like that. Uh, i got a lot of those books in my heresy section in my library. Yeah, yeah, good, good. And,
0: uh, yeah, I mean, I brought a couple of books today, but they're not in the heresy section. <laughs> so it's kind of show and tell today. Thanks, Wayne. Sure. Um, so here's a couple of good books that I recommend the church, I'm sure, would get behind me on this. This is good stuff. Uh, Guy Waters is a professor at RTS. Um, he was a student of EP Sanders at Duke. So directly from EP Sanders the main the initial main push for a new perspective on Paul came from EP Sanders. Uh, Reverend Dr Guy Waters was a doc a student of his at Duke and I was a student of Dr Waters at RTS. So straight from EP Sanders mouth to to his ear from his mouth to my ear and from my mouth to your ears. <laughs> so Go ahead, and uh, I don't think we have this in the library. If we do, it's checked out, but it's it's not very expensive. What is the title? It's accessible. Justification and the new perspectives on Paul. That's a mouthful. I know to write that down real fast, but you could ask me later if you're interested. Guy Prentice Waters. This one's even more accessible to the uh, to the laity, as you could you could say. John Piper, uh, Reformed Baptist, Reforming Baptist, I like to say. He's getting there. The ref- the future of justification. A response to NT Wright. These are both excellent resources for if you want to read up on these things. But the best resource that I could recommend to you is the paper that the, the OPC's report on justification that I sent out uh, two weeks ago. So if you have a chance to begin reading it, begin studying it, and you know chewing on it, it's important because you know the founding members of this church, was, it, you know these doctrines having come into their Reformed church, their Presbyterian church, it was important enough for them to leave. Inform this church. So it's important for people to understand these doctrines, to be aware of them, and to uh, be on the watch for them. And not only that, but uh, you know, I, I began teaching about the federal vision and new perspective as part of my Galatians class up in Wichita Falls. And a couple of years later, I found out from those members up there they didn't understand the point. What was the point? of studying the federal vision and the new perspective on Paul, and they didn't understand it at the time. Why, why is he teaching us this? But, you know, over a course of time, at least one or two families had visited them who had been taught the federal vision and had believed in it. So it's not only to protect ourselves that we become acquainted with these things. It's, it's not only to protect the purity of the gospel as it comes forth from the pulpit of our own church. But as people come into us in the in reform circles, we can minister to them. We can give them answers and make them think again. Um, so that's, that's the reason why we bother to examine the new perspective on Paul. It has a real-life application within the church, especially the Reformed churches. Okay, so I think Wayne had another.
1: Oh, it, uh, just Justin you mentioned Guy Waters. He also does one on the Federal Vision.
0: That's right. I'm, I'm working through that one again right yeah, now. Huh? Yeah, he's,
1: he's good.
0: So just think, uh, if you're going to buy a book, uh, you could look up Guy Waters on Amazon or somewhere, uh, WTS bookstore, uh, something like that. And uh, he's got a couple of books, one on new perspective, one on uh, federal vision. And at the, at the conclusion of that report that I sent out, the OPC's report on justification, consider the title. It's, it, it's, it's, it's a report that w- the committee that was assigned the task of producing this report It's called the Report on Justification. And they're tasked with criticizing the new perspective on Paul and the federal vision. And so, think about that. How important is justification? It's the heart of the gospel. And at the conclusion of that report, there are a number of recommendations. And I'll quote recommendation number two to kind of emphasize the importance of our becoming familiar with this, according to uh, uh, the ministers and ruling elders of the uh, General Assembly that year. That the General Assembly recommend that presbyteries, sessions, and pastors be proactive in addressing teaching of the new perspective on Paul and of the federal vision and life teachings that compromise the purity of the gospel. Okay. So hopefully... If you had any questions about why bother studying the new perspective on Paul, why bother studying the Federal Vision, um, that'll help inform that question. All right. Let's see here. Let's go back to the future, as it were, and consider what we discussed last time when we were talking about how the new perspective on Paul maintains that Second Temple Judaism was a religion of grace. Now, when I say Second Temple Judaism, you can't be thinking Old Testament religion. Because Paul, the apostles, Jesus, did never, never oppose the Old Testament. What they found themselves opposing in their first century there was uh, Second Temple Judaism. Which was not just the Old Testament. It was traditions of the elders. What did Jesus say about the traditions of, of the elders? Do you remember? Remember what he said? He said, you make the word of God of none effect by your traditions. The traditions of the Jews at that time was not complementary to the Old Testament. Jesus held it to be so contradictory to the Old Testament that he says that in holding to your tradition, you nullify the word of God. Now, who's going to be more acquainted with Second Temple Judaism? The Lord Jesus Christ or E.P. Sanders, 2,000 years later? As Christians, the answer is obvious. There's only one divinely authoritative interpretation that we have at our disposal of Second Temple Judaism, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his apostles. But the argument of the new perspective on Paul is that we don't understand what Paul's saying. And let's, let's deal a little bit more with that question, because... The new perspective on Paul is in essence saying that we have misread Paul these many years. Paul is not opposing a religion of works righteousness when he criticizes trying to use the works of the law to become justified and then prescribes faith instead. Okay, so let me uh, see where I'm at in my notes here so that I can stick to the program. Okay. And I will do a good deal of reading today uh, from these notes, so pardon me for that. Okay, so new perspective on Paul maintains that the Second Temple Judaism, first century Judaism, Judaism during the time of Herod's Temple, was a religion of grace and not a religion of works righteousness. Paul says that we are justified by faith, doesn't he? We're familiar with that. And not by the works of the law. And that means what it appears to mean to us. that the phrase works of the law does not merely refer to his, uh, his Jewish contemporaries, Paul's Jewish contemporaries, allegedly trying to exclude Gentiles with the finer points of ceremonial law. Now the reformers read these passages where Paul compares faith over against the works of the law. The reformers read these passages and interpret Paul to be saying that Judaism had gone astray and was misusing God's moral law as a means of obtaining justification before God, as a means of becoming righteous in God's sight. But the new perspective on Paul says, no, the Judaism of Paul's day was actually a religion of grace. So when Paul says things like we are justified by grace through faith and not by the works of the law, he is merely saying that Jews were trying to keep the Gentiles out of the covenant, with just a few parts of God's law serving as boundary markers, parts of the ceremonial law, namely the Sabbath rules, circumcision, and dietary laws. Paul was mad. He was was upset. He was getting exercised. Not about Jewish legalism. He was just upset about the fact that the Jews were requiring Gentiles to get circumcised, requiring the Gentiles to eat kosher, etc., and that, Paul's, that all Paul meant, when juxtaposing faith against works of the law, that's all he meant. So why is the new perspective on Paul's take on Paul's phrase, for instance, the works of the law matter? See, with the formers, and we, and they're standing on the foundation of the scriptures alone, especially the New Testament. We read the New Testament, and we see Paul criticizing anyone trying to use works of the law to become justified before God, to be declared righteous in his sight, as people pursuing legalism, using God's law to be justified before God, rejecting that, and embracing faith in Christ. That's our take. Their take is justified doesn't mean what you think it means. Righteousness doesn't mean what you think it means. And the works of the law isn't what you think it means. And we'll talk about that now. Let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians 3.20. Galatians 3.20. Now if I transcribe these notes from Galatians Imperfectly, I'm, I apologize but if, looking at Galatians 3.20 you can see if I do go astray Galatians 3.20 for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight okay isn't it Galatians
1: 3.20
0: okay I knew I would screw up certainly. no not that one not that one let's just go to 3.28 then For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Am I on the right path today? (laughs) (laughs)
1: Ridiculous. (laughs) Galatians 3.
0: I was using my computer program last night to copy-paste all this stuff. But the problem was, me and... Colin and Shannon were talking at the same time about a job he wants oh, yeah. to get, asking Dad about what he should do for his yeah. job. should I put this in my resume? Should I put this? In my... Don't copy and paste the scriptures when you're doing that kind of thing. Your,
1: your son asked you advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't ask. Oh. <laughs> I was just, you know.
0: No, I'm, te- I'm teasing. He was looking for a little guidance from, from, from the both of us on what to include and what not to include, which was, which was, which was nice. Okay. Okay. As I sit here and try to find what I was.
1: I hate it when that happens.
0: Yeah, really. I don't know what's faster. Is it Romans 3:20 and 28? Yeah. Is it? What is it? Romans 3:20 20 and 28. Yes, thank you. What's the difference? Romans Galatians. It's all it's all, a, it's all Paul. Okay. Yeah, good job. Okay, so Romans 3:20 For by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Got that? Okay. Glad you all understand that. So here Paul's using the phrase justified. He's using the phrase works of the law. Or the word justified in the phrase. And he's saying, no one is justified by faith in his sight. By works of the law. Okay, we say what? This means... You can't take God's law and start using that as a means to become justified in his sight. And what do we believe justified means? To be declared righteous in his sight, as having obeyed all his law. So that's what we take Paul to be saying here. New perspective says no, but I'm going to start telling you in a moment how they, uh, how they redefine these terms. And, it's, it's, and it really affects the content of the gospel in having done so. Now let's go to 328. For we hold that no one is justified, or that one, excuse me, we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. All right, let's stop there for a sec. Same thing. We are saying that Paul is saying that it's, it's by faith that you're connected to Christ and his work. That will justify you. You will be declared righteous in God's sight by your connection to a representative who did perfectly obey all of God's law. And again, they they say no. They say, and we could start talking about this here. Reading on, Paul writes, Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So Paul, in our reading, is saying, you know, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you can't satisfy God's demands of righteousness by being obedient to his uh, revealed will, his law. You have to trust in Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news from our perspective. Amen. Amen. Okay. Now, the question is, Is my next reference Galatians or Romans? That is the question. question.
1: It could be either.
0: It is actually Galatians, I think. So now let's go to Galatians 2. I hope. i you're human. Uh, As if that was ever in question. <laughs> I'm,
1: I'm not the only one. Yeah, he's... Well,
0: Joe probably knows... Reverend Traubman probably knows better than anybody how human I am. Uh, in the room. Okay, so... Galatians 2.16. Little question. okay. Yes, yes. I've always called this verse the gospel for dummies. I was a little bit more confident uh, that I was right on this one. What was it, uh, Galatians 2.16 <laughs> Yet yeah, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed, we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says it over and over again in different ways, doesn't he? That's why I think Gospel for Dummies is a good way to characterize that. Okay, so let's work through this text and compare what they're saying in the new perspective and what we're saying. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, replace in your text as the definitions of these terms the following. Replace works of the law, as if you can, as you're reading this text. Replace the phrase works of the law with these ideas. Circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath rules. It's a mental experiment. Do that. As Paul is saying, works of the law, everywhere he says that here, plug in just this little part of the law. Circumcision, the dietary rules, kosher, and the Sabbath rules. And imagine that's all that Paul's talking about with works of the law. Now replace justified... With declared to be a member of the covenant in good standing. It's a lot to stick in there, but it is the idea. Like I have to talk about what it means to be justified too. I I have to use a lot more words to to explain to you what the reformers and we believe the scriptures teaching talking about when it mentions the word when it uses the word justified. Which one? Justified. Justified, Yeah, yeah. They hold that to be justified. Is to be declared a member of the covenant in good standing.
1: So, another word would be
0: meritus. We yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Okay. No, you, you've 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 you looked into the future very well. That's 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 true. Although uh, the word merit the word merit is not embraced. Uh, However, they they can't get away from it, in my view. Uh, So, you've replaced works of the law with circumcision, dietary laws, and Sabbath rules. You've replaced justified with declared, not to be righteous as we understand it, but righteous as they understand it, the new perspective understands it, which means to be a member of the covenant in good standing. If you do that, the idea you're left with is that Paul is not, as I said, challenging legalism. He is just saying, like at Galatians 2.16, the following. We know that that no person becomes a covenant member in good standing by being circumcised, uh, following Sabbath rules, and eating kosher, but only by faith in Christ. So we have believed in Christ in order to become declared a covenant member in good standing by faith in Christ. And not by being circumcised and following the Sabbath rules and eating kosher. Because by being circumcised, following the Sabbath rules and eating kosher, no one will be declared a covenant member in good standing. You see the difference? I mean, at least grasp the, 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 that there's a difference here. We're saying works of the law means the you know, obedience to the revealed law of God, including the moral law. And then no one can be justified in God's sight, be declared righteous as having been obedient to all his law, unless you have obeyed all his law, and you can't, so you have to trust in Christ who did. And the new perspective is saying, no, the difference between Paul and the people he's arguing with is over these three little things, these boundary markers that traditionally have kept the Jews out, excuse me, the Jews kept the Gentiles out. They aren't circumcised. They're not following the dietary rules. They don't obey the Sabbath. And those as boundary markers, Paul is challenging, they say, their tendency to continue to keep Gentiles out of the kingdom by insisting that they be circumcised, by insisting that they follow the dietary rules, by insisting they follow the Sabbath. Paul's saying, according to them, "You guys are wrong. you can't keep the Gentiles out of the kingdom with those things." Okay, so I'll use I'll, I'll use some of my writing here to continue. So the new perspective holds that Paul's concern is that Jewish believers are keeping the Gentile believers from being freely declared covenant members in good standing by wrongly insisting that they must be circumcised, follow the Sabbath rules, and eat kosher in order to be declared covenant members in good standing and not simply by believing in Christ. And it'll get hopefully a little more clear as we go on. Let's assume that they're telling the truth. They're accurately interpreting Paul. Let's assume that's true. Now let's run with it. That leaves us where? It leaves us with being concerned with becoming and staying covenant members in good standing. The new perspective on Paul teaches you come into the covenant by grace through faith. And we shall come to uh, how they define faith. And when we do, we shall see that it is very much how Roman Catholicism defines faith. As we discussed before, as more resembling faithfulness than faith. But but the new perspective on Paul holds, one becomes a covenant member in good standing by faith in Christ. Yet how does one stay a covenant member in good standing. That's a big issue that Elder Wiley just mentioned as well. The the new perspective on Paul answers that you remain a covenant member in good standing by virtue of your own covenant faithfulness, your own spirit-led works, your own obedience to God's revealed will, namely his law. So you can indeed lose your justification because, again, according to them, Justification is simply a declaration that you are a covenant member in good standing. Now you are at the moment covenantly faithful. Accompanying this fact is their doctrine, the new perspective on Paul's doctrine, that God does not impute the act of obedience of Christ to the believer, that God does not reckon us as obedient to His law in and through Christ's life of active obedience. And in fact, they ridicule the idea that God can reckon the righteousness of one to another. And pile on to this their idea that, sure, you've been declared a covenant member in good standing by faith. That is, you've been justified. You must also be justified in the hereafter. You must be declared a covenant member in good standing at the judgment. And that declaration will, declaration will involve whether you were covenantly faithful. And so where does all this lead us? It leaves us on our own before God, left to be justified, however that word is defined, by our own works, by our own faithfulness, by our obedience. Or we will not be justified in the hereafter when we stand before Him. And where then is the gospel? Where is the good news in that? Be obedient, and you will be deemed covenantly faithful, that is, righteous, and you will be found within the covenant and in good standing. For new perspective, then, the good news is no more than this, and this is key to understand. For the new perspective, the good news of the New Testament is this and this alone, that God has removed the barrier to the Gentiles, and they may now partake of the same deal God had for Second Temple Judaism, graciously be admitted to the covenant by faith, Remain more or less faithful to the terms of the covenant. How faithful you have to be is never revealed or known. And be found in good standing at the time of the judgment. In other words, you come in by grace, but you will stay in by works. You come in by grace, but you stay in by works. And as you can see, this is not good news. This is another gospel. But let's take a moment now in the remaining time with us, uh, for us to uh, quickly examine and address some of the more exposed and vulnerable nodes of their construct, the new perspective on Paul. First, does works of the law really mean what they say? They maintain that works of the law rarely refers to a small part of the law, parts of the ceremonial law, namely being circumcised, following the Sabbath rules, and keeping kosher. Does everybody appreciate that? We say works of the law means all of God's law. They say works of the law only means these three things, these three parts of the ceremonial law. We say all, they say it means a little bit. Let's go to Galatians 3.10, and I'm sure that we're in Galatians this time. Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on works of the law, there's that phrase again, are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Why is that verse so important for understanding the meaning of the, word, the phrase, works of the law? Can somebody tell, tell us what, what, what about that is like a little decoder ring for understanding the phrase works of the law but it means all or part. All things written in the book. Yeah, Paul uses this phrase works of the law right here. And then he goes on to ex- reveal his mindset about what that means. All things written in the book of the law to do them. So as as the report says, the OPC report on justification says, ultimately the new perspective on Paul and its theses is exegetically indefensible. And this is one of the reasons why. They they define works of the law in a way that is inconsistent with the way works of the law is used in the New Testament. And hopefully you can appreciate that. Here's from the report. Talking about Galatians 3.10. When Paul quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26 in Galatians 3:10, and again that's Deuteronomy 27, 26, the reference cannot be only to boundary markers, but to the entire law, which is evident from the broader context of Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 30. Now We also differ with them on the definition of what righteousness is. I broached that already. Justification, right, means to declare righteous. So how you define righteous is going to matter. All right. Justification means to declare righteous. The meaning of the term righteousness is, as as I alleged, disputed between the new perspective on Paul and the reformers and us your church, the OPC, and other other churches. While we interpret the Bible to say that righteousness means moral probity or rectitude, that is, fancy words for adherence to a moral standard. Righteousness means obeying a revealed moral standard. That's what we maintain. The New Perspective on Paul argues that righteousness means, as I said, covenant membership, in good standing. So righteousness according to the new perspective on Paul in the Bible doesn't mean obeying the law being found obedient to the whole law. It only means that you're a covenant member in good standing. Well, what does the scripture say? Let's test that against scripture. Turn to Genesis 18. Verses 24 and 25. You'll remember this interaction between Abraham and God. Genesis 18, 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked. So that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous men in that city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. How does this confront the notion that righteousness in the Bible only amounts to covenant membership in good standing? Why does this speak to that? Someone? We're talking about what righteousness means.
1: Members
0: Who was God in covenant with at this time? The Jews don't even exist at this time. It's Abraham. That's it. Abraham and his household are the only ones in covenant with God this time. How could there be, even conceptually, 50 covenant members in good standing... Sure. In Sodom. And there weren't. As we know. But, but the. Yes.
1: But when the. The federal
0: vision people kind of push back and said. Oh but but God knew that at the time. And Abraham just didn't quite grasp it. Because he didn't realize. That. But what's the meaning of the term? It, it would be a nonsensical conversation. Yes. Unless it's referring to a moral standard. So that's what we're saying. We're saying that it. This conversation makes sense because righteousness means adherence to a moral standard. So if these people are obeying God's revealed law, say the law of the conscience or whatever it is, or they heard something about God's law and are following it, and the Lord deems them there's 50 of them righteous in Sodom, he'll spare it. That's what makes sense. You make nonsense of this if you say the word righteous means covenant member. Yes?
1: The term haggling comes into Hmm. mind here. Abraham's haggling with God
0: yeah he, he tolerates it seems to
1: be kind of relevant to what we're talking about how you're going to haggle with God justified or not
0: yeah I mean you'd see how that there would be some sort of a consideration there about that down the road but the essence of the point is the definition of the term yeah. does the word righteous mean covenant membership in the Bible Abraham and God are talking about sodomites, about whether there's any righteous people there. Yes. This is kind of a rabbit trail, but we know that uh, Elizabeth exists, even though he hasn't entered into the story yet. True. He's the king of Satan, he's the king of righteousness, right? Right. Foreshadowing pride. Indeed. But that won't help us wrestle with the question of whether the word means covenant membership or not, because the you know the identity of Melchizedek and all these other things, theologians even in the Reformed Church would go back and forth about that. Is he a pre pre incarnate Christophany himself, or is he an actual guy who, you know, lived in at that time as a king of Salem and a king of righteousness, king of peace and righteousness? You
1: know, Robert, my comment about haggling—it
0: was absolute. God knew absolutely. Oh sure, sure. So yeah. Oh yeah, and he, it's a, it's a clear condescension on God's part. Yeah. So the question is. When you read the Bible, and it has the word righteousness, is it communicating the idea of covenant membership to you in this text? It can't. So it's, again, according to your church, the OPC, exegetically indefensible. The main theses of the New Perspective on Paul, on on these key phrases, works of the law, and this key term, righteousness. It doesn't mean covenant membership. It can't. Okay, so the term righteousness, we're almost done. The term righteousness cannot mean covenant membership, as various theologians associated associated with a new perspective maintain. Such a definition is untenable in the face of such texts as we've looked at. This text, where Abraham negotiates the deliverance of Sodom and Gomorrah on the premise that there might be 50 righteous men within its confines. Given that God was only in covenant with Abraham, it is impossible here to define righteousness as covenant membership. Clearly, righteousness is moral equity. And this is language from the report of the OPC. When one considers the term righteousness as it is applied to God as well, we were talking about men being righteous or not a moment ago, but let's consider God, you know. Can God be righteous to anyone outside the covenant? Does the Bible ever hold forth God as being righteous, not only to covenant members, but to people outside the covenant? Well, that suggests that he's adhering to his own moral standard. Standard dictated by his own nature and not following the rules of his own covenant because these people are outside of his covenant. So hopefully uh, I don't have time to tease that out. I hope you get the point. Um, When one considers the term righteousness as it is applied to God, it cannot universally mean his covenant faithfulness. What, the report asks, for example, of God's righteousness towards those who are outside the covenant is God righteous in his dealings with unbelievers? The scriptures affirm that God is righteous with both those inside and outside the covenant. To understand righteousness as covenant membership and God's covenant faithfulness is also exegetically indefensible. Okay, so like I said, we can't do a deep dive into new perspective, but hopefully you get a grasp of what they're saying in some And a couple of the weak points of their thesis exegetically speaking it doesn't wash with the, what the whole counsel of God and what it talks about when it talks about works of the law and when it talks about righteousness and uh, next lord's day uh, lord willing we'll close the course in the doctrine of salvation with a again a, a, an excursus of a brief examination of the federal vision let's close with prayer Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all of your blessings, the light of your truth. We ask you, Lord, to please shine it upon our hearts and minds so that we can understand it, better defend ourselves and our church, and serve others with that light. And we now ask that you bless us as we gather together around your throne to worship you, help it to be in spirit and in truth, and we pray these things for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name alone do we pray. Amen.